Hello, and welcome to Ready and Newman's Daily Podcast, your go-to place for common questions about immigration to the United States. Ready and Newman is a team of experienced business immigration attorneys who handle a host of visa categories and complex immigration cases. This podcast will provide an insight into our daily free conference calls hosted by our attorneys, as well as discussions on hot immigration topics. Please note that information provided is not to be construed as legal advice for your specific situation and does not constitute an engagement with Ready & Newman PC or establish an attorney-client relationship. For specific advice on your situation, please contact an attorney. Here's your host. My name is Rebecca Chen. I'm a partner with Ready and Newman, and I'll be conducting the conference call for today. Uh, Gayatri, can we start our first question? Sure, Rebecca. Bini? Good afternoon, Rebecca. My question is, um, back in October 2020, I downgraded um, from EB2 to EB3. I got my EAD and AP card. Um, and then I interfiled in March 2022 um, to tie my 485 to EB2, I-140, got the receipt notice, but my I-140 under EB3 was downgrade, I-140 was pending. So last week I did the premium processing and my I-140 is also now approved. It's been about two weeks, I would say that I-140 is approved. So I just wanted to see at this time, since I've already interfiled, is it really worth waiting for the interfiling um, um, uh, results or, um, or refiling is also an option. Yeah, that's kind of hard to say. Um, I have been leaning towards recommending just the interfile and not the refile at this point in the fiscal year, because right now we know that USCIS is focusing on approving as many um, eligible applications that were filed by June 2022. They, their aim is to approve as many of those as possible by September 30th. So if you file a brand new application right now, it's not really in that target of applications that USCIS is trying to get approved. Whereas once your application is successfully interfiled, since it's been pending since 2020, it is then in that category of cases that USCIS is aiming to um, adjudicate by September 30th. Um, so it sounds like you've done everything that you can do and you know right. everything that we've kind of recommended doing um have you gotten the receipt notice for the interfile yes i did get the receipt notice as well okay have you yet gotten a transfer notice for your i-45 no no that's where i was wondering if how do we make sure that case get transferred would it be triggered through a refiling or how that's that's where i was wondering recommendation earlier was to file premium for uh, downgrade i-140 which i did and it's been approved for two weeks now um just wanted to see what could trigger the transfer of my case from texas service center to nbc yeah, from what we've heard, there's not much that you can do besides what you've already done, file the J supplement and upgrade to premium processing for the downgrade. Beyond that, there isn't much that can be done to kind of trigger USCIS to transfer the case to the National Benefit Center. Refiling actually definitely won't do that because a refile is a whole new application that they'll treat separately from your pending application. So refiling won't really 
to move your existing case to the National Benefit Center, but based on statements that UCIS has made recently, they have stated that um, they are still in the process of transferring eligible I-485s. So they have said they are still in the process of actively identifying those I-485s at Texas or Nebraska that are eligible to be transferred and doing the transfers. And we're still seeing some transfer notices kind of trickling in as well. So I would say that you, there isn't much more that you should or need to do right now. Um, I think CIS will hopefully kind of in not too much longer transfer the case to NBC and then um, adjudicate it. So um, I actually opened the request and requested a call from tier two, tier two officer regarding that. Do you think would it be a fair question to ask from tier two officer? I am I, I am expecting to receive a call this week that uh, if my um, case has been transferred or when do you plan to transfer the case? I don't know. I just want to make sure that call is productive and I don't know what question should I ask. This I know they're not going to ask uh, answer straight questions like if I ask the status and all. So um, just wanted to see, would it be worth asking them um, when do you plan to transfer my case or if it will be transferred at all? You can definitely try. And if they, if you already scheduled to receive a follow-up call this week, um, it doesn't hurt trying to ask, but it wouldn't surprise me if the tier two officer doesn't really have that information either. Um, yeah, I think they are just, they're working as fast as they can. It sounds like to kind of identify and transfer those cases. Um, so I would just, honestly, I, I don't think there's too much you could do proactively on your side at this point. Sounds good. No worries. I'll, I'll, I'll like this. Um, uh, I think the good thing, good uh, course of action is to probably keep waiting for um, for interfiling um, interfiling results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. Next question. Rahul. Um, Rahul, hi, Rebecca. So uh, my wife was uh, my wife was on L1B visa from November 2016 to from June 2016 to November 2021, around five years, including out of U.S. steps. She was okay. for five years, and then uh, before that, we moved her to um, H4 visa, and she was here from November, I can say from November 26 till February 1st on H4 visa. And she moved out of country on February 1st, 2022. Now her company is trying to trying to file her L1B again. So it, will it be applicable from November 26th or February 1st? Because I think there is a one year cooling period required, right? So yes, from when will it be applicable? My understanding is that it has to be one year of time spent physically outside the US. So. I don't think that the time she spent in H-4 status could count towards that one year gap. So if it was February of this year that she departed the U.S., I believe that um, the company would not be able to request her additional L-1 time until starting February 2023. And uh, can she travel here for five weeks in next month on H-4? I don't believe so. So it does seem like the... Uh, without restarting the clock, basically. Um, I believe that one yes. year of time to reset the L1 clock has to be continuous time physically spent outside the U.S. So if she does travel into the U.S. during this time, 
I mean, she can, there's nothing wrong with that if she's coming in on an H-4 visa, for example, um, but she and the company should be aware that it could reset that one year clock. So it could be longer until she can. Oh, so it could reset the clock then? Yes, I believe so. Okay, okay, thank you. Sure. Next question. Sandana Priya. Yeah, hi, Rebecca. Currently, I'm on H1B visa. So I recently resigned a job from my previous company and I joined a new job. Before joining a new job, I have signed a contract which states like if I leave the company, previous company within like three years of the H1 period, I have to pay like 20K of the liability charges. But um, Today, I got an email from my principal advisor saying that I need to pay the 20K or else like uh, they will have to go to the court and they are asking me, uh, let us know like how we want to proceed. Yeah, so those types of contracts are pretty tricky because legally the H-1B petitioning company is not allowed to require um, kind of payback of any H-1B related fees um, or make kind of the um, period of stay with the company contingent on reimbursement of any H-1 related fees. Even if they haven't in the contract kind of called it the, you know, payback of H-1 related fees, um, it kind of depends sometimes on on whether those types of contracts are enforceable. It does kind of depend on the state that you are in um, because... The company is in Herndon, Virginia, Herndon. Okay. Yeah, because then it becomes sort of more almost of an employment law issue rather than an immigration law issue, whether that employment um, contract term is enforceable by the company. It may be that they are just including that clause in their contract to try to deter employees from leaving the company. Um, and uh, it may be that depending on Virginia's employment laws in its state, whether that's enforceable, what chance they have in court, um, I would say you, you may need to consult with an employment law attorney that is local to Virginia to be sure on how much the company can really do um, okay. based on that contract. Okay, uh, sure. Like, uh, I'm just wondering whether I can do off the court or uh, whether I should go on the court because I'll be traveling to India like uh, this month because my H1B stamping is there. So I'm wondering like uh, if I go to the court also, like uh, how much I will suffer or because I'll be out of country like for one month. Yeah, from an, yeah, like I said, from an immigration perspective, all we can say for sure is that they can't require it legally for you to pay back any of the H-1B fees. But if they have phrased it a different way in the employment contract, um, it'll be more of an employment law issue. It may be that it's not really enforceable or in order to enforce it, it may be so expensive that they're kind of bluffing potentially. Um, so I think, yeah, probably an employment law attorney that is okay. local to Virginia would be able to give you more insight on, yeah. on the probability of that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rebecca. Then I'll contact sure. the attorney. Next question. Sudhi Mishra. Uh, hi, actually, uh, Rebecca. Uh, thanks hi. for having me. Uh, so I have a question, actually. Is there any financial implication when you file a downgrade? Uh, actually, I filed downgraded in 2020 uh, October, and then uh, my 
EB2, sorry, EB3 140 approved. I got the EAD and advanced parole. Also at the same time, I'm maintaining H1 and uh, I am having EB2 uh, 140 approved. So okay. in this situation, uh, like uh, if, uh, if I refile the 140, uh, will there any, sorry, not refile 140, refile the I-485 with EB2, will there be any financial implication to the company? Like, you know, no, not to the company. So you're with the same company, the same, same I-140 company. petitioner? Everything is okay. same company, no changes. Mm -hmm. Have you submitted an interfile request? No, not yet, actually. I mean, that is second question to me. My okay. company is a little hesitant to do interfile or refile. So I wanted to understand. Oh, they're hesitant to do both of them? Both of them. Okay. Um, yeah, both of them are going to require the company's cooperation because in both cases, the company would need to sign a J supplement confirming the job offer, um, the J supplement but for the interfile. My question or is, for will there be any financial verification of the company during this process? Uh, not, no, not as far as we have seen, uh, if it is a pretty straightforward case. If there is something going on with the company, for example, if you know anyone else in the company who has gone through this process and has been called in for an interview to the local USCIS office, there is a possibility that you could be called in as well uh, potentially regarding the company's financials, I but know only, I know only uh, that you know. Uh, I, I mean, according to my company, I am the only guy who got EB three downgrade approved with one forty approved, uh, one forty, and you know, advanced parole and uh, everything got approved. Rest of the people, the one forty downgrade is not yet approved. <laughs> so that's what they told. Yeah, all I can tell you is that um, if you refile the I-485 or if you file a J supplement, there's no ability to pay review the way there is for a new I-140 petition. Unless there is something going on with the company that USCIS is investigating, which they could call you in for an interview for. But that is kind of depends on the company's unique situation. In general, there is no ability to pay uh, review um, for a new I-485 or a interfile. Okay, and uh, okay. can I do a interfile uh, without companies, uh, you know? Uh, no, I the company's cooperation is needed for both. Interfile is not at all. If I submit an application, uh, I saw there are some options, you know, like. The company's uh, signature is required on the J supplement for the interfile. Okay, uh, next no question. There is no other way to do interfile? No, there isn't. The company's signature is required on the J supplement in order to interfile or to file a new I-485. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question. Shri. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for answering our call. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have uh, downgraded from EB2 to EB3 October 2021. Um, and then uh, recently this month, I have interfiled to EB2 uh, and I got the uh, interfile I-485J service request with the MSC uh, uh, service uh, MSC, uh, notice and my all the petition is in Texas Service Center. Um, so the issue is that my downgrade petition EB3 I-140 is still pending. Um, so, so my question is that does that cause any adjudication delay for, uh, you know, uh, my interfile, uh, EB2 interfile? 
It could. Um, UCIS has not been entirely clear on whether you can get the final I-485 approval when the underlying EB-3 I-140 is still pending, even if you've done the interfile. So they have said, UCIS has said that basically the EB-3 doesn't need to be approved in order for you to request the interfile to EB-2. So you can request the interfile to EB-2, send in the J supplement, while the I-140 EB-3 is still pending. So a lot of people have done that. What UCIS hasn't been clear yet on is whether the final I-485 can be approved if the EB-3 I-140 has not yet been approved because it okay. was, you know, to make sure that the, the initial I-140 wasn't frivolous or, you know, something like that, that it was filed based on a legitimate I-140 that could have been approved, even if it is no longer the basis of your I-485. So for so far, we have not seen any I-485s where the EB-3 is still pending. And so for that reason, we're recommending that people upgrade the EB-3 to premium processing if you haven't already, just to get it approved in case that is something that USCIS is treating as another requirement before the final I-485 approval. All right. So you're recommending to go for the premium processing of EB3 I-140, right? Yeah, that is what we're recommending, even though UCIS yeah, said yeah. straight out yet that that's needed. Yeah, I consulted with my company attorney, but her thought process is that uh, she was saying that uh, uh, that might confuse the USCIS because uh, the interfile request is, uh, uh, is that for uh, trade the request only for EB to I-140, then after that, if you're... Yeah, it shouldn't confuse them, I don't think, okay. because the premium processing upgrade will be going to the Texas or Nebraska Service Center where your I-140 still is. Your I-485 may have been successfully transferred to the National Benefit Center, but the EB-3 I-140 doesn't get transferred along with it. It stays at Texas or Nebraska, and so that's where the premium upgrade would go. Um, oh. Yeah, it's a separate application. It shouldn't really confuse you with CIS. All right. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Uh, next question. Prashant. Um, hey, Rebecca, thank you for taking the call. Um, mm -hmm. So as previous caller was saying, uh, I'm in a similar situation. So uh, did a downgrade, um, did not get up 140 approved yet. Uh, got EAD just two weeks back, actually. Um, uh, filed the interfile in March and got the receipt. Um, and I think, yeah, that's pretty much it. So, yeah. uh, so I saw one recommendation that what you just said about upgrading. So I'm going to try that and see, uh, for the 140. The second question that I have is that, uh, uh, is it possible that I can do the medicals right now and just keep the records of sealed envelope with me and mm -hmm. wait for... RFE and as soon as RFE is there, I'm so is there a validity period for that? Because I, I'm going to be confused with the 60 days. So if yeah. I get after 60 days, then what happens? So. Yeah, there used to be a requirement that you had to submit the medical exam within 60 days of the doctor signing it in order for it to be considered valid. But that 60 day requirement for now is suspended temporarily. So okay. until September 30th of this year, USCIS is accepting um, medical exams, even if it's been more than 60 days that the doctor signed off on it. So um, 
the only requirement is that it needs to be on the newest version of the I-693. So the I-693 medical exam form that the doctor signs, USCIS updated it last October. So just make sure the doctor is using the most recent version. But um, as long as that's the case, then it can be submitted um, more than 60 days from the signature. So we are recommending that people, if you have not gotten the medical exam yet or submitted it to USCIS. Um, it does not hurt at all right now to go ahead and get the exam because sometimes it can take a while also to schedule the doctor's appointment, get the vaccinations if any are needed, um, and have it in hand so that USCIS, when they do send an RFE, you have it ready to submit right away. Um, and then, you know, if worst case scenario, if they don't contact you by September or if you're not able to get the I-45 adjudicated by September 30th, you can hopefully still provide it later if USCIS kind of continues that suspension. But um, yeah, we're definitely, USCIS is also recommending that people have the medical exam ready. What we right. saw last year in August and September was USCIS started sending medical exam RFEs, a ton of them all at once, sometimes even calling people on the phone to get the medical exam. Um, yeah, so if you can be prepared with that, that would be best. Okay, and uh, for the, since my case is still with Texas, I did not get a transfer notice yet. Okay. Uh, so that what you're saying is 140 applying premium may trigger that or it may happen. So let's say if I tomorrow get a transfer notice, should I still do 140 upgrade? <laughs> I'm still in the past yeah, field. that is kind of, yeah, that's something that, like I said, USCIS has not been clear on. They haven't stated clearly whether, even if you've had your file transferred to the National Benefit Center, whether doing the premium upgrade um, is necessary to get the I-485 approved. So we're not saying, we're kind of recommending it if people are looking to kind of do everything they can to, you know, remove any possible roadblocks. Um, but it could also be possible that, you know, if we start getting I-485 approvals where the EB-3 is still pending, like I said, we haven't seen any situations like that yet. Um, but if we do start seeing them, or if UCIS comes out and clarifies that the first I-140, no longer, it doesn't need to be approved in order for the final I-485 to be approved. We'll definitely update everyone on that. But for now, since it's unclear, we're and since the service centers are accepting the premium processing upgrades for I-140s now, we haven't gotten any rejections of those like we used to. Um, we're recommending people to do it if they can. Um, but doing that is not necessarily a guarantee that it um, right. that it's absolutely necessary. Got it. Okay, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Sure. Next question. Ram Swaroop. Hi, uh, Rebecca. Um, so I filed my uh, H4 and EAD for my wife in January, hoping that uh, it would get approved in uh, six months. It has not been approved yet. And just last week, and her uh, H4 and EAD got expired. And at the same time, her employer filed for H1, which is still under process with the USCIS that has not been approved yet. And uh, I know that uh, whichever is uh, approved at last by USCIS, that goes into effect. So mm -hmm. uh, in, in, uh, in my wife's case, uh, we are hoping that H4 and EAD gets approved first so that we get 
uh, we can take advantage of that until October. And later on, if uh, H1 gets approved, we can, uh, she can start working from October 1st on H1B. Um, so is there a possible of any conflict here or is there any risk involved? That should be fine. So the H1B application that was filed was um, a cap subject application. Like she was selected in the lottery? Correct. Okay. So it won't go into effect until October 1st at the earliest. Yeah. So right now she's in a period of authorized stay based on the pending H4. She just can't work until the EAD comes in. So hopefully, like you said, the EAD would be approved this summer, which will allow her to start working at least. And then when the H-1B goes into effect, she can change over to H-1B status. Um, yeah, I think that's about all you could do right now. Um, kind of the recommendations that we had been giving about potentially going to Mexico or Canada as a way to a workaround of extending the H-4, that is not really possible right now for your wife since her I-94 is already expired. So we're not recommending that after the existing I-94 is already expired. So um, yeah, I think at this point you'll um, kind of just need to wait for the H-4 EAD to hopefully come in before October. Right. So if the H-1 gets approved let's say this month and the H4 and EAD are still pending and uh, H1 is approved to uh, be start started on October 1st and uh, let's say H4 and EAD gets approved next month. Will that override the H1 status? Um, that's a good question. There is an argument to be made that it wouldn't override the H1 because the H1 doesn't go into effect until October. So the effective date of that change of status would be October 1st. So I would say that even if the H-1B gets approved first and then the H-4 before October, um, I would say that as long as she is in the U.S. on October 1st, then it should, the H-1B should still go into effect on October 1st. Um, if you want to make sure about which one is in effect after after October 1st, um, you could just go for, you know, a quick trip to Mexico and come back with the H-1B approval with the I-94 attachment. So then you would be using automatic revalidation, or she would be, um, in order to come back in and make sure then definitely the most recent I-94 that she has is an H-1B. Um, so I would say that even if she doesn't leave the country, the H-1B should still be the one going into effect. If the H-4 gets approved, if the H-1B gets approved next month, for example, and then the H-4 gets approved in August because okay. of the effective date on the H-1B. Yeah, so in September, right before October, uh, she's planning to go to India anyways for stamping. So oh. in that case, if both are approved, um, which one can we go for a stamping? Can we just pick one? Yeah, whichever one is, uh, yeah, the H-1B has to be approved at the time she is scheduling right. the um, appointment, the DS-160. So if it is approved by then, um, if her intention is to be in H-1B status, then I would go ahead and schedule it for H-1B if you are able to secure an appointment. Got it. Yeah, okay. thank you. Rebecca. question? Sure. Next question? Huh? Hi, Rebecca. Thank 
Hi, sorry, I think you're muted. Uh, yeah. Am, am I ahead. audible? Okay, yes. thanks Rebecca, for allowing me to ask a question. I have a Dropbox question actually. So currently I'm eligible for Dropbox per the 48 month rule because my last stamp was 20, uh, December 2018. So my question is the appointments right now, they, which are rarely available are of 2023. Uh, so if I go for that, I would not be eligible for a Dropbox because I am overcrossing that 48 month rule. So how can I make the system understand that or how, how should I be still going for that, which is a Dropbox or I don't want to get into hassle and then the then they are saying that you are not eligible because of 48 month rule because right now I, it says I'm eligible for Dropbox. So what should I do in this case? Is it allowing you to make the Dropbox appointment for 2023? Yes, it's yes. It's not actually asking any question related to the 48 month rule. There is no mm -hmm. question for the interview waiver eligibility, which, which says for the 48 month rule. That's why it's allowing any of the random dates which are out there. Mm -hmm. So my, 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 my concern is if I take the 2023 appointment right now, and if I go for dropbacks, I don't want the officer telling me that you have to come for a, a interview later because you are not no longer eligible per the 48 month rule because right. my 48 month rule ends on December, 2022. So mm -hmm. what should I do in this case? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I don't think there is a way you can get the system to understand that necessarily. Um, it may be that they are allowing it to be scheduled because anything, at, maybe they're going by the time that you're scheduling the appointment, if it's valid within four years of when, right now, when you're scheduling the appointment. That may be the case, or I don't know if the system is anticipating that the Dropbox expansion will be extended beyond the end of this year. It would make sense if they do, because based on the recent statements from the consulate, they are still very behind. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if they end up um, continuing the Dropbox accessibility extension. But um, even if they extend it, I won't be eligible because my 48 months period get I, over by December 2022. So. Yeah, I honestly don't know. If I were you, I would probably still just schedule the appointment if the system is allowing me to. Um, and then, yeah, and then see what happens. I mean, even if, I don't know how to get the system to recognize that right now. So exactly, um, yeah. even if it could, I mean, the alternative would be that you schedule an in-person appointment for sometime in 2023. So, you know, if you schedule the Dropbox now, which it's allowing you to do, if that ends up not working out, then your alternative will still be scheduling an in-person appointment anyway next year. It may be worth trying the Dropbox if it's allowing you to now. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I wanted to avoid that hassle and wanted to make sure that I just get one out of it and just, just everything went smooth. That's the reason of mine. Uh, yeah, I would I say if you want to be safe, entirely safe, then it would be a matter of just um, scheduling an in-person appointment for 2023 right now and not uh, selecting the Dropbox at all right now. Okay. Unless an appointment becomes available for, you know, the next six months if something opens But right up. now I, I'm eligible for Dropbox, so it's not allowing to show me the in-person appointments. Oh, it only shows the Dropbox, yeah. so that's where I'm in a... Uh, limbo right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, if that's the only thing the system is allowing you to do, I would probably okay. give it a try because, sure. um, yeah. No problem. I just have another follow-up one. Like uh, my I-140 uh, priority days is, is incorrect uh, for, based on the last employer. So if, yeah. if my ne next employer is filing the I-140, can I get that corrected, right? Yes. You can always request the priority date being ported in a new I-140 petition. Um, the misprint on an I-140 approval notice of a priority date, unfortunately, it's not uncommon. We see it from time to time, and it doesn't affect your actual priority date. Your actual okay. priority date is still kind of the earlier one that you're reporting. So for yourself, you can kind of consider it the correct priority date. And then if you do end up filing another I-140 in the future, you can request it to be correct on the new notice. Perfect. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sure. Yep. Um, I'll do one more question, Gatri. Alok. Hey, uh, Rebecca. Uh, my priority date in the EB2 is uh, September 2013. Okay. Uh, in October 2021, I filed the EB3 downgrade, but that is still pending. So mm -hmm. my employer has filed my new petitions 485 in EB2, and it was received on June 2nd of this month. Okay. On June 14th, yeah, on June 14th, I got my all the receipt. On June 21, mm -hmm. my fingerprints were applied. Okay. And on June 27, I got the 485J receipt also. Okay. I have two questions, Rebecca. Uh, somebody was telling me if you get the 485J receipt. It means that your case is active and is being worked by some officer. Is it correct understanding? So that's a little different. There are a few different functions of the J supplement. Um, the one that that person is referring to, that's where your J supplement has been filed when you are requesting an interfile, like a transfer of an existing EB3, I-485, and you want to move it into an EB2, I-485. Yours is a little different. Um, because the I-485J that was recently filed for you was part of a whole new I-485 package, right? Filed in the EB-2 category. So yours is a little different. That message, um, that was part of the USCIS FAQs, and that is kind of applicable to a different group of people who are interfiling. So if you did get the J supplement, that usually means they're transferring the I-485 from Texas or Nebraska to the National Benefit Center. Your case though is a bit different. Um, I would say that your case is active. It sounds like it is if you've been scheduled for the biometrics recently and you've gotten all the receipt notices. Um, the hope is that your I-485 will be, the EB-2 I-485 will be adjudicated by September 30th. And um, UCIS did say that they are targeting any eligible I-485s that were filed by early June 2022. They're trying to approve as many of those as possible by September 30th. So it sounds like yours is in that group since the most recent I-485 was filed by early June 2022. So yeah. So I just want to clarify that uh, EB-3140 is still pending. My attorney is saying forget about it. You don't have to yeah, do you can forget about that one. Yeah. yeah. If you were, if you decided to interfile like earlier this spring, then we may be recommending to upgrade the EB3 I140 to premium. But since you've done like a whole new set of I485s and it's already filed, so now you have an EB2 in one track, a whole other previous I485 on the EB3 track, which you can just 
leave alone. You don't really need to withdraw it or do anything with it. Um, the hope now is with this newest I-485, hopefully it will be approved by September 30th. And they have taken my fingerprint from EB3 and they applied in EB2, even they didn't ask me to come for the fingerprint again. So That's fine. Yeah, USCIS has said they are trying to reuse biometrics where they can. So Let me get just one last question. My daughter petition is also included with this. She's turning mm -hmm. 21 in less than four months. I know that her age is locked now, but I heard, I learned from somewhere that I can still request for the expedite processing because she's turning 21 in less than four months. Um, I'm not familiar with any particular um, expedite request process for aging out um, children. Um, they may, UCIS may be on their own sort of identifying those where children are aging out and are kind of prioritizing those potentially. But um, like you said, her age is definitely locked in now. So for some reason, if the applications are not adjudicated by September 30th and they remain pending even beyond her 21st birthday, she is still eligible to receive the green card. Okay. So thanks, thanks, Rebecca. Looks like I'm on track then. Thank you. Yeah, I would say so. Okay, um, we'll need to end the conference here for today. The next one will be tomorrow at 11.30 Central. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ready and Newman Daily Podcast. We sincerely hope that you've taken something valuable out of it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. For more information or if you want to make an appointment, check out our websites rnlawgroup.com and immigrationgirl.com. Have an awesome day.